Seltzer Kings Podcasts. I'll say what you will about New York, Gavin. At least there's not eight rats for every person like in London. And that's not even counting the one you guys call your prime minister. Yes. The following podcast contains... Profanity, food jokes, and tired comedy references. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. What do you told a city of 8 million people to go fuck themselves? What the hell were you thinking, Gerald Ford? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, on this episode number 368, the Welcome to Fear City edition of the show, where we kick off a month of talking about my hometown, New York City, in the 1970s. Stay tuned. What the Hell We Think Podcast is brought to you by The Bad Old Days. Are you a politician with an agenda? Do you want to stir up false memories of crime and despair? Do you not have a plan to fix anything and desperate to distract your constituents? Then you need The Bad Old Days. The Bad Old Days are one-size-fits-all for whatever social or political problem you have. Just allude to them and people will immediately cringe and stop asking you annoying questions like what you're planning on doing about the problems we have today. When used in conjunction with our co-plan, the good old days, you will soon discover you can just say any old shit and never actually have to do anything. Just ask our number one client, the current mayor of New York City. The bad old days. They were pretty bad, but it's better than dealing with your problems today. New York is one of the few places you can get around without a car. The subways are crummy, and they're dangerous. You get pushed, you get shoved. Sometimes you get mugged in the subway during the daylight. I can remember when public transportation was one of the prides of New York. What happened? The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure because everyone else seems to be. New York is almost broke, and you know why? Because too much money is going to the suburbs. They're killing us. What I like about driving a cab is that you get to meet all sorts of people. You know, like I had an ambassador from the UN this morning, and screen actors. What I don't like about the job are the kooks, and there are more of them all the time. I've been held up twice. But this is where the money is. And as long as you gotta make a living, that's where you gotta be. According to the 1980 census, the town that I was born in, Etowa, Tennessee, had 3,758 residents. By comparison, there were 3,613 residents in the 2020 census. So I take it things are going well? Well, that might be overstated a bit. For the most part, Etowah as a town hasn't had a damn thing going for it since the railroad discontinued regular stops there in the 1950s. Now, what it does have is lethargy, inertia, and despair. Sounds like paradise. Sure, if your idea of paradise is a drug habit and a rundown trailer home. Needless to say that when I was 10 years old, however, I never wanted to leave. Yet leave we did, and we left for the mega city of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, 
population in 1981, around 440,000 people. And I was damn sure that I was in the big city now. Dream big, right? Now, this didn't happen all at once, but sometime along the way of my childhood, I began to like living in the idea of the big city. And I thought that maybe someday I might even live in a really big city like, I don't know, Cincinnati, which is where all the members of my family who ran away to the big city went for like a year and then slunk back to Tennessee. But deep down inside my heart, I had a secret a dark desire to do something that I knew I could never tell anyone, especially my parents, because they would never, ever approve. They might even disown me. Yay, I knew it. No, no, nothing that dramatic or cool. No, you see, I, I thought I might want to live in New York City. New York City. Now, you might wonder why such a thing would be such a dark secret. Well, it's simply because my parents, myself, and everyone alive knew that New York City was a cesspool of violence and sin that once you entered, you did not exit unscathed. And I thought I might want to be scathed. And so it was that I, in the spring of 1988, stepped off a bus at the Port Authority and into the pre-Giuliani Times Square in the dying days of its decadence. And pod friends, I looked one around, took one look around at the filth and the crime, and I knew, I knew, I would live in this city someday. It would be 15 years before I finally made it back, and the city that I came to in 2004 was wildly different than the city I visited in 1988. I came expecting to find the grit and grime, and instead, what I found was... Disneyland! And I've lived here almost 20 years now. I'm still not really over that initial disappointment, but, but the good news is, and there is good news, apparently, according to everyone, we're heading back in the right direction. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is because I've decided to talk about the bad old days of New York City, the fabled dark time of the 1970s, when disco ruled... The Bronx, the Bronx burned, and a chubby David Berkowitz waddled through the shadows of Fear City. I am the monster, Beelzebub, the chubby behemoth. Before I can get there, though, we have to understand what was going on in Gotham that put the city in such a shitty situation. And it all starts with sound financial planning. Nope, I'm out. Hold on, hold on, hold on. I, I couldn't make it interesting, or at least more interesting and slightly amusing. You see, what had happened was in the 1960s, New York City was embroiled in all the other issues that were consuming America. The civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, the war in Vietnam, the departures of the Dodgers for Brooklyn, and the bitter disappointment of getting the Mets in exchange. Go sports! And on top of that, you had this massive change in industry and transportation and manufacturing. So all the blue-collar jobs that had once formed the backbone of New York City's middle class dried up and moved away, and that brought huge labor unrest on top of everything else. And then finally, there was a massive demographic shift. Now, there had always been a lot of African-American people in New York City, but now Puerto Ricans began moving stateside for economic advancement and became the vanguard of a large influx of Latin American immigration following the Immigration Act of 1965. And with all these black and brown people moving here, 
white people decided it was time to begin their migration out to the suburbs. The entire city was in a state of flux in the 60s, and when just when it started to settle down in the 70s, the city was entirely unprepared to adapt to the changes. So to put it succinctly, it was fucked up. As the 1970s dawned on New York City, the situation was grim. Crime was skyrocketing. Crime? Boy, I don't know. And was unquestionably the biggest problem facing New Yorkers. In 1960, there were 482 murders reported in all of New York City. Well, it's not counting the mafia bodies that weren't found until the 90s. But by 1970, there were 1,117 murders. And that number rose until 1990, when it peaked at 2,245 murders. By contrast, there were 485 murders in New York City in 2021, which is up considerably for the past few years, but nowhere near the bad old days. And murder was just the big crime. Every type of crime was climbing in the 1970s. Robbery, arson, rape, auto theft, all steadily rose until the 1990s. You're only getting mugged if you go downtown. And the New Yorkers got mugged a lot. Sometimes two and three times a night to hear tales from some of them. And it got to the point where you could just explain being late to anything, like a job interview, by saying, sorry, man, I know I'm a few minutes late, but I got mugged on the way over. And your job interviewer would be like, no, I got you, no problem. Come on in and have a seat. NYC was hardly alone in the spike in crime, but New York City became the symbol of how bad things were. And since New York City was the home of the national media, crime ran nightly on the news. This is the CBS Evening News with Walter Cronkite. And it wasn't just the news. Hollywood jumped on that bandwagon in a big way with movies like Panic in Needle Park, The French Connection, Clute, Mean Street, Serpico, Death Wish, The Taking of Pelham 123, Dog Day Afternoon. All of them portraying New York, New York City's a barely contained rage festival with blood on the streets every night and nobody safe, on the, safe outside after dark. Television shows set in the city all feature the running joke of about 30 or 40 locks and chains on your front door with the characters making a big show of undue them each in turn and every subway car had to be dimly lit covered in trash and festooned with ominous graffiti and the big daddy of the ball 1979's the warriors just flat out told america that new york city was basically nothing more than a war zone and the worst part of it all they're not wrong the city was teetering on the brink of collapse and everyone knew it it got so bad that the nypd and the fire department unions published themselves a little newsletter that would be handed out to people visiting the Big Apple from out of town, aptly titled, Welcome to Fear City. Now, this pamphlet was just a simple thing. It's cover festooned with a black robe, human skull, and... It has the words, Don't Panic, printed in large, friendly letters on its cover. <laughs> I'm kidding. We at Red Welcome to Fear City, a survival guide for visitors to the city of New York, which is about far as far from don't panic as you can get without shouting, everybody panic, we're all going to die. Now, archive.com has the full text, but here are some selected readings from Welcome to Fear City. Number one, stay off the streets after 6 p.m. Even in midtown Manhattan, muggings and occasional murders are on the increase during the early evening hours. Do not be misled by the slate sunsets during the summer season. If you walk in midtown at about 7.30 p.m., you will observe that the streets 
are nearly deserted. Number two, do not walk. If you must leave your hotel after 6 p.m., try not to go out alone. Summon a radio taxi by telephone or ask the hotel doorman to call you a taxi while you remain in the lobby. Follow the same procedure when leaving the restaurant, theater, or other location for your evening activity. Avoid public transportation. Three, subway crime is so high that the city recently had to close off the rear half of each train car in the evening so that passengers could huddle together to be better protected. It has been proved that increasing the number of transit police officers will cause a reduction in subway crime, but announced decreases in transit patrol will have the opposite effect. Accordingly, you should never ride the subway for any reason whatsoever. In Midtown Manhattan, you may, at only slight risk, ride the buses during daylight hours only. Number four, remain in Manhattan. Police and fire protection in other areas of the city is grossly inadequate and will become more inadequate. In the South Bronx, which is known to police officers as Fort Apache, arson has become uncontrollable problem. If you remain in midtown areas and restrict your travel to daylight hours, emergency service personnel are best able to provide adequate supervision and protection. Things kind of go downhill after that. Now, Fear City was total fucking propaganda by the police unions, but in a rare case of not being entirely fucking wrong, actually had a legit grievance against the city because the police, fire, and EMS and sanitation services were being brutally cut by City Hall. The Yaddo boroughs were essentially told, Good luck with that. And abandoned by the city who concentrated most of the remaining money for those services in Manhattan where all the rich people lived. Not unlike today, where our new mayor has decided Manhattan below 96th Street and the good parts of Brooklyn should be swept clear of all homeless people and is happily pushing them far out and out of the sight of the wealthy and the tourists who are trickling back into our fair metropolis now that we are pretending the pandemic is over. Nothing ever changes. But the difference between today and back in the 1970s is New York City was well and truly fucking broke. And a pot to piss in. Which, you know, not that big of a deal because everyone was just pissing in the streets anyway. Quoted from a 2015 article in The Guardian by Kevin Baker, quote, New York, like F. Scott Fitzgerald, had gone broke in the usual way. Slowly at first, then all at once. The city was no worse run, no more corrupt than it had been throughout most of its history, but for 10 years it had relied on a disastrous policy of funding its operating budget with short-term debt. RAND's revenue application notes, TAN's tax anticipation notes, and even BAN's bond anticipation notes, that is notes drawn against future notes, the city's financing had become so slipshod and haphazard that it no longer even maintained an official set of books. In New York State, we haven't only found backdoor financing, we got side door financing, lamented Governor Hugh Carey, and by early 1975, New York City owed five to six billion in short-term debt out of an operating budget of 11 and a half billion. According to the then city budget director, Peter Goldmark Jr., many people believe there is little or no real security or receivables behind these obligations. Wall Street bankers, who had enabled much of this reckless behavior, now abruptly refused to take up any more city notes, leaving it teetering on the edge of bankruptcy, unquote. It's worth noting here that New York City was still, even at the height of its financial fuck-up, paying more out to the state and federal government in taxes than it received in return. Which is why what happened next still pisses off New Yorkers 50 years after it happened. Going back to The Guardian, quote, It was then that President Ford decided to advance his own political prospects by holding New York up for ridicule to the rest of the nation. 
Ford, an accidental president about to face a stiff primary challenge from Ronald Reagan. Oh, there he is, Podfrids. You knew he'd come up eventually. Went before the National Press Club in Washington in October 29, 1975 and called New York's mismanagement unique among municipalities through the United States. He blamed its situation on high wages and pensions, its tuition-free university system, its city-run hospital system and welfare administration. Ford insisted that the city's day of reckoning had come and promised he would veto any bill that has as its purpose a bailout of New York City to prevent a default. The speech provoked the most famous headline in history by the usually conservative New York Daily News, a tabloid boasting the highest circulation of any paper in America at the time. In 144-point font type, its front-page announcement proclaimed, Ford to City, drop dead. What a dick. But if you want a little cherry on the top of that dick-flavored ice cream cone, the guy who got Ford to say fuck you to NYC was a cat with a name that you'll be familiar with. Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah, Rummy was Ford's chief of staff at the time. I guess Baghdad wasn't the first city that Rummy had his hands on destroying. Huge dick move. So the city began laying off cops, firefighters, sanitation workers, teachers, and, and, sanit and garbage. The garbage piled up. Calls for help went unanswered and fires burned unchecked in the Bronx, where building owners quickly realized that the insurance on their property was worth more than the property was on the market. So they burned it down. And yes, the mafia was balls deep in that action and was operating in the city as kind of a de facto government, admittedly a criminal government, in many Italian and Irish neighborhoods which were still a thing in the 1970s. The legitimate government inched closer and closer to defaulting on its debts and declaring bankruptcy something unthinkable at the time. These same unions who had handed out the Fear City pamphlet actually had to be convinced to put their pension funds as a bailout. Pension funds were also a thing that we had at the time. Into city bonds, and they did. This meant that even with this infusion, if the city went bankrupt, their entire pension fund would go down the shitter as well. It seemed no one could help because even the bat signal had to be disconnected because the city couldn't afford to light it up anymore. And New York's problem wasn't just a New York problem or even just a United States problem. Again, from The Guardian, quote, In London, the Times newspaper called Ford's position denying aid to New York City an act of monumental folly. At the International Monetary Fund's October 1975 summit in Washington, Ford reportedly approached the West German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt and asked amiably, How's the Bundesbank? How's the mark? Only to be told, Mr. President, uh, let me say this property. Yeah, Mr. President, never mind the Bundesbank or the mark. If you let New York go broke, the dollar is worth scheiße. That's... Probably more Arnold Schwarzenegger than Helmut Schmidt, but we're going to run with it. Schmidt went on to announce publicly that New York default would have a domino effect, striking other global financial centers such as Zurich and Frankfurt. At a later summit in France, the French president, Giscard d'Estaing, joined Schmidt in insisting that the bankruptcy of New York would be seen as the bankruptcy of America. At home, public sentiment seemed to shift. Polls showed nearly 70% of Americans supporting some kind of aid for New York as long as the city balanced its budget and taxpayers outside New York didn't have to foot the bill. 
In late November 1975, Ford urged Congress to pass a bill marking $2.3 billion a year in loans. It quickly passed and was signed into law by the president. The city was saved. The city would not go bankrupt, but years of austerity and cutbacks still lay ahead. Many of them posed on the same men and women whose sacrifices had rescued the city with their pension funds. Those city workers who had kept their jobs generally lost their cost of living raises at a time when inflation reached 16 to 18%. The NYPD shrank from more than 42,000 police to less than 27,000 by 1990. The same year that murders in New York reached the record high of 2,245, unquote. Just because the city did not go bankrupt didn't mean that shit got better. Trash? Still not picked up. Bronx? Still burning. Crime? still rising. The decade of the 70s was the nadir of New York City, and in some ways it was worse than the Great Depression because the Depression was an equal opportunity brutalizer, but the 70s fell hardest on the black and Latin communities in the city. Drugs, heroin in particular, ravaged low-income neighborhoods, and gang violence became the only law on those streets. Burned cars lined the blocks and children played in the rubble of collapsed buildings. Corrupt landlords allowed housing to become unlivable. But you know what? People still lived in them because they had no place else to live. Jobs? Nearly impossible to find as there were literally no more industries in the city and those few that remained were mostly construction work in the building trades and they were under the thumb of the mafia who, if you don't know, were not equal opportunity employers. Schools, those that were still open, were overcrowded and falling apart, and the teachers, those of them that were still working, were paid less, and many of them had to leave teaching for higher-paying jobs like being a tire scrubber at a car wash or a line cook at an all-night diner. The transit system was steeped in shit. The entire subway was basically a giant trash fire waiting for somebody to talk a, toss a cigarette on it. The bridges and tunnels were rusting in place, and there was a genuine concern that the iconic East River bridges might actually collapse. The parks, including Central Park, were six sad brown islands of despair, and you would need to be a literal fucking madman to venture into any one of them after dark. If you've ever seen the incredible movie Escape from New York... You snake Pliskin, ain't you? What do you want? Nothing. I thought you were dead. Which was made in the 1980s, but the scenes of New York City as a prison island were directly drawn from the worst parts of New York City, and to be honest, they were slightly better than some places in the South Bronx and the East New York and parts of Harlem. The greatest city in the world was in a fucking fix, and it would take decades to get out of it. But at the same time, if you ask the people who came here during the 1970s, they will tell you it was the fucking greatest time to be a New Yorker without question. James Wolcott wrote in Vanity Fair back in 2009 after the financial crash and everybody was saying that New York was going back to the bad old days, quote, for those who migrated to New York and secured a foxhole while the city bled out, terminal conditions weren't all bad. We're an upside to a downward spiral. Having fewer people clogging the scenery aired out the city nicely, opening up corner pockets of private and public space where all sorts of termite creativity could take place and did. 
It was a more egalitarian city than it subsequently became with the rise of the super rich. The crime and the crumminess were more evenly dispersed. Real estate was affordable even for artistes and aspiring deadbeats. Artists lost boxcars of light. Raw, occupied, and used by artists were not tilted to Euro trash trustafarians, investment bankers, and hedge fund hotshots, and similar bonus babies who would model their cheekbones and cutlery collection on Patrick Bateman in American Psycho. Venturing into the IRT subway station on the teeming crotch of Times Square over whose portals should have appeared the inscription Abandon Hope All Ye Who Enter Here, journalist Vivian Gornick gave the Village Voice readers in 1972 a panoramic prose mural of misery below. The platform was indescribably filthy. The tile walls surrounding the staircases were streaked with years-old dirt and the graffiti of a thousand greasy marker pins. Johnny and Velda, 69. The Jets was here. Lindsay sucks. Tony and Maureen, 71. Benny and Conchita forever. Loreen is a cunt. The Black Hawks can beat the shit out of the Silver Eagles anytime. The floor was littered with the overflow of the trash cans that stood vaguely about candy wrappers, orange peels, le leaky milk cartons, prophylactic wrappers, torn nylon stockings, pallets of chewing gum, discarded junk mail, gobbets of spit, and the lights in the ceiling were crusted over with webs of dirt that threatened momentarily to fall on the heads of the passengers, unquote. And this is Walcott raving about how awesome New York was in the 70s, to which I gotta say, fuck yeah, man. That was the New York I imagined that I was gonna get when I moved here. When Warhol was in Studio 54, the Ramones were playing CBGBs. The kids that became SNL's first not ready for primetime players were just coming up. When the first stirrings of hip hop were, were bubbling in the Bronx and when gay men were fucking and fucking well without a care in the world, reveling in their first experience of sexual freedom before the virus came and started killing capriciously. When you could watch John Lennon coming in and out of the Dakota without fucking some shithead from Hawaii putting a bullet in him. Young writers were working on capturing the zeitgeist of a generation in dirty windowed bars, trying to come up with the words to explain how the world had changed. And before, this was before they all took jobs writing ad copy on Madison Avenue in the 1980s. It was before Wall Street was finding new and exciting ways to fuck over Main Street and the only place you could find money was on the Upper East Side. It was before Donald Trump had his gleaming edifice to his tiny dick thrust into the New York City skyline. It was when the Twin Towers were just an ugly eyesore and questionable financial decision. Hell, even when the mafia was a glorious occupation for up-and-coming young Italian boys and old Italian men would sit in social clubs and plot horrendous crimes, but at least they looked cool while they were doing it. And when Times Square was the worst fucking place on the planet because it was a cesspool of drugs, low-rent sex work, and utter despair, and not a cesspool of corporate mediocrity and unfettered greed, and like an urban bukkake spewing his capitalist jizz on the willing face of a fat fucking tourist coming in to fucking eat at a goddamn Applebee's just like the one they have back home only costed three times more. The 70s, not the 21st century New York. That's the New York I wanted to live in. And I hear Sully saying, oh, Dave, but the crime... Let me tell you something. About a year ago, I was bopping back to my house on my little quiet residential street here in West Harlem. 12.30 in the afternoon on a Sunday. Bright sky, warm as February day, and some fucker came up to me and started stabbing the shit out of me. No reason, 
No warning. There wasn't even someone I owed money to. Just a random crazy dude who wasn't from the neighborhood. He just started stabbing me in the fucking chest over and over again. And while I tried to get away from him and finally ran into my local bodega and called the cops, by all rights, I should be fucking dead. One of his knife thrusts was right between my ribs on the right side of my, on the left side of my chest where my heart is. And I would be fucking dead if the dude had a knife with a sharpened blade, but he had some sort of dummy knife that martial artists used to train with. The cops caught the guy a block or two away, and the worst I had was some bruises, and dude was seriously, seriously mentally ill. He was homeless and a combat veteran. And I still haven't gone to trial on this almost a year and a half later, and actually, I don't even want the guy to go to jail. He needs help, but he won't get it in jail. But you know what? After it was over, once the adrenaline subsided and I realized how fucking close I had come to dying right there, do you know what I felt? Truly, deeply, in my heart of hearts? That after this, I was finally a real New Yorker. You're crazier than he is. Probably. But you know what? If I'd lived here in the 70s, that shit never would have happened because I would have known to get the fuck away from some shouting lunatic on the street and not just assume it had nothing to do with me. But I didn't, because I live in the 21st century New York where things are safe. And yeah, I live to tell the tale, but after that tale, I know I belong here because I didn't pack up and move out to the flyover because I got scared. It will take more than a random stabbing to get me to leave the city I love, even if it is turning back to the bad old days, which is totally is not, and even if it were, I would be fine with that. That is it for the show this week. This is just the first of a month of shows that we have on tap for you. It's like a, a primer of all the fun things that were going on in the Big Apple back in the 70s. Next week, we talk about the time the lights went out in New York. And then we have a two-parter on the Summer of Sam, when the wicked king of Wicker terrorized the city. Wicked King of Wicker, man. That, that is way too cool of a name for a schlubby dipshit that was David Berkowitz. But that's for later. Speaking of being a Berkowitz-level disappointment, rate and review this show wherever you can. It helps others find the show, listen to it, and realize they should have listened to their neighbor's dog telling them to kill instead. Do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing, otherwise he will lay down a Gerald Ford-level sick burn on you by telling you to drop dead. And so for me, Dave... We're so young and pretty, so young and clean, so many things that we've never seen. Let's move from Ohio, sell this damned old store, Big Apple Dreaming on a wooden floor. Bledsoe, producer, New York is waiting for you and me, baby waiting to swallow us down New York. We're coming to see what you are made of. Are you as great as you sound? Gavin and all the fictional Big Apple Dreamers on the show, we want to say I heard about them massages and all those dirty shows I read some places never close while we waste our time on yokels coming through the door, Big Apple Dreaming on a wooden floor. And we'll see you all next week. What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. 
You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. New York is a loud, overcrowded cesspool of 10 million people. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.